Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the Paleo Policy Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being here. I've uh, this is the first time I'm doing this. I just really appreciate uh, your patience and hospitality. How's it going in Utah? Oh, things are good. It's a beautiful day. It's starting to warm up here. Oh, nice, nice. Um, I at doing the research for this. Um, I, I see that the park had been closed due to the coronavirus outbreak. Outbreak is that still true? Yes. So Dinosaur National Monument is still closed at the moment to the public. But our interp staff is working hard to bring a lot of online content for people that they can view via Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and places like that. Um, mm-hmm. But the monument itself at the moment is still physically closed. And so no one should or would be able to just walk around the park, not only just the, the facilities that you guys have, but the park itself is closed to all visitors. Yep. The park itself, even uh, the river and any backcountry travel. I see. I see. Um, and how, how has that, you know, affected the kind of work that you guys do at the, at the monument? We aren't going into the office every day. We are doing social distancing as well and mm-hmm. working from home, teleworking a lot. And yep. so I am doing most of the work I would usually be doing in my office from my home office. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I can't just run up to the Carnegie Quarry if I need to real quick. I have to plan sure. everything well in advance. So that kind of work's interrupted. And then a lot of our field work has gotten delayed um, Mm. for researchers and for ourselves and some various projects, but we're managing it. It's better to be safe. Of course, of course. Yeah. And I've seen on Facebook in particular that you guys have uh, live Q&A sessions. How have those been going? Oh, they've been going really great. We have really stellar interp staff here who have been doing a lot of their question and answer sessions and Facebook live videos. And then I've also started developing some short video content, like two minute long videos about cool Mm. facts from the Carnegie Quarry for people to watch as well. Yeah, I did see the um, little clip that you had on Stegosaurs. Yeah, we have um, a few more coming up. We have one that I've done on sort of the history of the quarry and how many dinosaurs are there. Have one coming up on a patasaurus, one on Stegosaurus tail spikes because people are really intrigued by that. Also known um, as a thagomizer. Exactly. It's very <laughs> popular. And yeah. So we talk about the thagomizer and then um, planning on having one about baby stegosaurus too in the future because we have some baby stegosaurus fossils. Uh, I had in my research for this, I had read that um, approximately or maybe even more than half of the dinosaurs discovered in North America during the Jurassic period are found at the Carnegie Quarry. Is that true or... Maybe is that Um, a little off? It's probably off these days. A lot of work has been being uh, done in the Morrison. Again, it's kind of having like the second life to it because that was sort of the original formation that people dug early on in North American paleontology. And Mm -hmm. um, people started looking at other outcrops and exploring other areas. And the Morrison's definitely becoming more rejuvenated, which is really exciting. So we probably don't have half anymore. But uh-huh. many, many, many specimens have come from this quarry, especially some that you see in museums all over the place, like the holotype of Apatosaurus Louisi at the, you know, uh, Carnegie Museum in, in Pittsburgh or the uh-huh. Camarasaurus that they have on display in the new Smithsonian exhibit. Things like oh, that. yeah. And uh, you guys also have Allosaurus and, and Brontosaurus as well. Suprasaurus or is have- it Seismosaurus or Suprasaurus? We, so we have the sauropods, the long-necked plant-eating dinosaurs, Camarasaurus, yes. Diplodocus, Barosaurus, 
and a patasaurus from the Carnegie Quarry. So those How are our four theropods. And then we have Stegosaurus, Dryosaurus, and Camptosaurus for the other um, herbivores, Ornithischians. And then mm-hmm. we've got Corvosaurus, Ceratosaurus, and Allosaurus for the theropods. And then there so have been awesome. turtle and crocodiles and plants of course. and lizards and things like that. Well, for those who don't that don't know, what what is the Morrison Formation, and what what sort of significance do you think uh, the Morrison has for paleontology? Sure. So the Morrison Formation is a package of late Jurassic rocks that occur um, in the western portion of the United States. They're mm-hmm. you know roughly in the 150 million year age range, and mm-hmm. the Morrison Formation preserves just this really great environmental snapshot of, of what the late Jurassic would have looked like. The Morrison formation in my area of the Colorado plateau is split mm-hmm. into three different members or kind of subunits within the Morrison formation. Mm-hmm. So we have, um, the Tidwell, which in some places is, is not counted as part of the Morrison formation. Then we have the saltwash member, and then we have the brushy basin mm-hmm. member. And most of the fossils found at the Carnegie Quarry here at Dinosaur National Monument come from that brushy basin member. But the new Allosaurus that was named from the monument, Allosaurus gymnatsoni, comes mm-hmm. from the saltwash member. So it's actually older than the fossils we get in the Carnegie Quarry. I see. I, re- I don't know much about Allosaurus myself, but I am aware of Big Al. I do with these two Allosaurus, would they have existed at the same time? Yeah, so they... Their paper determined that Big Al, which was found in northern Wyoming, is mm-hmm. actually the same dinosaur as Allosaurus Jim Madsoni. So those would have been living at roughly the same time, probably not to the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Allosaurus fragilis, which is the state dinosaur of Utah, and yes. which we have a bunch of in Dinosaur National Monument and in the new Jurassic National Monument at the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry, Ooh. that dinosaur is younger in time. Than oh, I see. And um, are there any indication? Oh, are there any indications that these these two would have interacted with one another, or, or are they still far apart? Yeah, they're still far apart in geologic oh, okay. time, so they wouldn't have been interacting with each other. Interesting. The one little tidbit that I that I always like to share with people, and I've I've seen it circulated, um, is that there is less time between us and T-Rex than there is between the Stegosaurus and the T-Rex. And so, and it kind of gives you just an idea of how much time we're, we're talking about. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the Morrison formation has about 56 million years of history, just there spanning, I believe it's 13 States. Yeah. It depends on where you're looking in the, in the state and what part of the country The when you go further North in North America, mm-hmm. uh, like up around uh, South Dakota and Wyoming, Montana, the yeah. Morrison formation is a little thinner and doesn't preserve all those separate units mm-hmm. um, as it does when you're like in the center of the Colorado plateau. I see. And, and Dinosaur National Monument, for those that don't know, it, it actually spans two states. And you, yes. you, I believe you're on the Utah side, right? That's right. So my the Carnegie Quarry where I work is on the Utah side of the park. And we are a park that borders both Utah and Colorado. So the park spans both states. And so we're located in extreme northeastern 
Utah and extreme northeastern Colorado, or sorry, northwestern Colorado. Mm. And do you, do you in, in your capacity, do you jump jump over the state line and, and work on the Colorado side, or are you exclusively at the quarry and, and here on or there in, in Utah? No, I'm the monument paleontologist for the entire monument, so I do work in Colorado oh. as well. Oh, cool, cool. Are there any, you know, are there any differences in specimens on the Colorado side as opposed to the Utah side, or, or just um, are there more of one dinosaur on one side of the border than the other? Or is it kind of evenly distributed? No, that's a good question. Um, The majority of the park, I would say, is on the Colorado side. I forget the exact acreage Mm. of it, but the the bulk of the park is on the Colorado side. And the fun thing about Dinosaur National Monument, when you think about it, is you would expect it to be all Mesozoic Age rocks, right? Yeah. But the bulk of the park is Paleozoic rocks, so rocks that are older than the age of dinosaurs. And so the bulk of the rocks in the park are these very, very old rocks that have things like trilobites and seashells Ooh. called brachiopods and corals yep. and things like that. So you get the, I imagine you just get a great environmental picture of, of this area, of this area that's just kind of stuck in time yeah, or at least yeah. moving forward through time with us. Sure. We have a quite a few different geologic formations in the park over 20. And so it's exciting to be able to, you know, span through geologic time like that. But nice. we do have more subformation present on the Colorado side of the park as well. Uh, we just don't have as big of a, of a quarry like what we have at the Carnegie quarry. Yeah. And so I, you know, doing the, the research for this, when I, you know, when I was a graduate student, I was looking at national parks and, and you know, executive policy relating to, you know, the Antiquities Act and, and all that, which kind of brought national monuments um, to the United States. A f- for those interested, you guys should definitely check out Dinosaur National Monuments logo. I thought that was such a cool logo. It has a very, it has kind of like a noir feel for it because your Dinosaur National Monument was founded in 1915 by President Wilson. Um, is Is that history you know displayed in that area or at the um at the park you mean with like the establishing of the monument yeah just kind of discussing it and um because it's one of the earlier uh monuments i think you know the antiquities act passed in 1906 and only a few years later that the i i just think it's interesting that you know the executive branch of the government finds the the value sees the value in these paleontological resources and absolutely. they preserve that area for all of us to enjoy yes absolutely we're very thankful that it was set aside and then later the park was then expanded upon in the 30s to contain the area that's now in Colorado and a, and a larger mm. portion of of this this wonderful area that I have the privilege of working in so it is very cool our Utah Visitor Center has a little bit of park history in the Visitor Center that you can walk mm-hmm. around and visit. And then same, we have a the uh, Visitor Center on the Colorado side that you can stop and visit. And it talks a little bit about the establishment of the monument. Nice, nice. Yeah, that, that logo is just really cool. I, I applaud you guys for um, just making something so aesthetically pleasing. I thought it was really cool to see all of the different um, symbols that represent the park contained, yeah. I believe, in... I would assume it's an allosaur, but yes. maybe I'm wrong. It is, yeah. Yeah, they did that for the centennial a few years back. Yeah, nice. That's really cool. So it's it's still in place. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to put one feature of the park over the other, but it, it appears that the, the crown jewel is this quarry hall. Um, Carne- I think it's the Carnegie Quarry Hall. Uh-huh, yeah. 
And can you describe to listeners what that looks like? Um, what and you know uh, what sort of activities you guys uh, engage in with this quarry? Sure. When you come to Dinosaur National Monument, and you're able to usually you can drive up to the quarry building in the summer. There's a shuttle that you can take, and that shuttle's been running since the late 50s, early 60s. And so it's very cool. It's got little dinosaurs painted on the side. And it's a lot of fun to, nice. to ride the shuttle up. Our parking lot up there is kind of small. And so we um, we encourage people to take that historic shuttle up in the summer. Mm. And when you come up, you see this large building that's um, got a lot of glass in it to let the natural light in. And mm. when you walk through the doors, you see the entire hillside preserved inside this building. And the hillside has been um, cleaned. The rock had been being cleaned from starting in, um, I believe, in the 30s all the way up until the 1990s. They were cleaning the wall and looking for these fossils. And some of the fossils were removed, but for the bulk of the monument, most of the, or the quarry wall, most of the bones are still in place for you to be able to see. So when you walk in, you see all of these dinosaur bones still encased in the rock where they were found visible on on this gigantic wall. And so the wall, you know, you would usually think when we find fossils, they're flat lying. But in this area, all of the rock has been tilted up due to mountain building. And Mm -hmm. so the fossils are almost on the vertical for you to be able to see. Yeah, it's got a nice angle to it. So you can just you can see it very easily. You can see the the top of it and and what's right in front of you. Are there any um, is there any way that uh, people can touch these fossils or is it completely off limits? We got to we got to preserve it and and not contaminate it. No, there's actually some fossils on the when you so the the building has two different levels. It has a, a an upstairs story where you can see things up a little higher. And then mm-hmm. when you go to the downstairs area, there are fossils in the wall that you can actually touch. There's a large um, shoulder piece uh-huh. that you can touch from a stegosaurus and a sauropod. There's a, a big femur. There's some vertebra. So there are things that you can get up close to and see and touch. And, and we encourage people to touch those ones that are yeah. right there near the floor. Is it um, is it true that one way of determining whether or not a piece is a fossil or not is to lick it? You can, yes. You can, but I, I assume you can't do that at the quarry. I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. They are touch bones, even though they do get cleaned. Um, yeah, yeah. You have to remember how many people have touched them, and especially of course. in the day and age, it's probably yeah. best to not walk Probably not. Probably not. Just an, <laughs> just an interesting tidbit for those yeah. listening. Yeah. Um, so how, how you know, because I've, I assume over time people touching the fossils with, you know, their own, um, uh, by just touching the fossils, don't they damage it in some way? Is there some sort of deterioration that occurs when human oils or, you know, humans interact with fossils? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, the fossils that we have that people are able to touch, um, have been being touched since the fifties. Yeah. So, they had um, a protective coat of, of basically glue mm. um, put over the top of them a long time ago. And yeah. so that kind of helps protect the bone from being worn down. But there are definitely spots where things have been touched a lot. And yeah, it wears it down a little bit. But 
we still have, you know, 1,500 other bones that people don't touch on a regular basis that are in pristine shape. So, uh, right. Kind of and they survived millions of years exactly. of, of pressure and yeah. heat and time and, yeah, all that. So. As, a, as, a, as a kid or an, as an adult, just as a human, it's, it's amazing mm-hmm. to be able to walk up and touch one of these bones and know that you're touching a real dinosaur bone. And, and there yeah. are many places that you can have that experience because often those things are mounted in a way where you can't reach them or touch them in order to protect them because they are very, very fragile. But here at Dinosaur yeah. National Monument, we are, we encourage people to have kind of that, that great moment of connection to the actual resource there and to be able to just reach out and touch it is, is a really special thing for people, especially when you think that, that bone is still in the sediment where it was originally deposited um, right. and then turned into rock. It's It's been waiting for 150 million years, so it's kind of exciting for people to be able to. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, is there, um, are there any active, you know, paleontological work occurring at the quarry when I, I volunteered as a gallery interpreter at the Los Angeles Natural History Museum years ago. And uh, they still had some specimens that were mounted that they would uh, still have active uh, studies on. Do you, do you guys in, engage in that or is it mostly just for the public to observe? Well, we aren't actively removing any fossils from the wall. Everything that sure. we see there we intend to leave for people to be able to see and enjoy. But we do have researchers that travel to the monument to be able to study the fossils that are on the wall themselves whether that's just through taking measurements and looking at it. Um, mm-hmm. We had a researcher come by last year who had a, uh, as a portable x-ray diffraction machine, basically. Oh. He was able to hold that up to the bone and non-destructively be able to tell what the mineralogical composition of the bones were. So that was kind of oh. a cool thing. So, so we allow non-destructive sampling, you know, like coming up yeah. and, and studying the bones and measuring them and doing things like that on the wall. So we definitely have a lot of researchers that do that. We've got researchers that are hopefully still coming later this summer to study the Allosaurus skull that isn't on the wall anymore, but it's on display in the quarry. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of researchers that come through to do various things. How cool. Yeah, it, it, there was... Um... The one or the instance that I'm referencing from when I was at the Los Angeles Natural History Museum was, uh, I think it was a Pliosaurus, correct me if I'm wrong with that pronunciation, but it's uh, not a dinosaur. It's uh, an aquatic reptile um, and it's mounted on the wall and still has, um, it was carrying an infant at the time. Oh, cool. And I, I think what happened was that they, they took off the protective shielding that they had from it. It's like this bulletproof glass, just, <laughs> you know, uh, no, no. Um, what, what was it that John Hammond said? Uh, no expense spared or spare no. no expense, uh, yeah. yeah, spare no expense. Uh, but they, they actually, if I'll have to check this again, but I think they drilled into the vertebrae mm-hmm. of, uh, of this animal. I, not hundred percent sure, but I, I'm pretty sure that that's, that's what occurred. And, um, they were able to put the glass back up and it's still, um, observable for the rest of the public, but it technically was still, it's not really a dig site, but it's, it was still being, um, studied. Actively worked on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And some people will, um, they have special drills, um, or the ability to take small sections out of, out of fossils to be able to do thin sections to look at them under mm-hmm. microscopes. So that has taken place 
before I arrived at specimens on the wall, but we aren't currently doing any like active histological sampling of bones on the wall, but we have yeah. many, many fossils in our collection that are accessible for researchers to do study on as well. And the, the animal or the, the dinosaurs at the quarry, were they all, you know, uh, did they all die at the same time and just one cataclysmic event or was it something that's you know that occurred over time because there's great biodiversity just in the in the quarry itself no that's a great question so we had um here at the quarry there's at least three separate events that occurred to preserve all of those fossils and what it looks like happened was that the the deposit where the bones are all preserved is an ancient river channel and just like anywhere else modern day sometimes areas undergo droughts and this area it appears was undergoing a drought the water that would have been in the river channel started to dry up it was probably impacting the plants that lived around that and there were lots of animals that were living near this water source because Mm -hmm. you know water and food it's what you need yep and so those animals were probably becoming drought stressed and sick and would pass away either right there near the river or in the river channel itself. And then once the drought was over, the rains would resume and their carcasses would get washed into the river channel or covered Mm -hmm. up there near the river channel. And that's what preserved them here at what becomes the Carnegie quarry. So we know and, that that's happened at least three different times. So that's how we get these different horizons of bone layers. Hmm. I remember reading that um, Tyrannosaurus growth was heavily dependent on, you know, its nutrition. And so there are certain years where um, I guess they can tell by the, by the, these rings that are found in the bone, correct? Sure. Yep. And they suggested that, you know, there could be indications of, of you know, m- instances of, of starvation or just lack of food in in the ring itself. Is there any evidence of that with these animals that they were suffering some sort of, you know, uh, drought or lack of food and it, it prevented their growth in any way? Or that's was it just question. not available? Um, I haven't seen any of the histological data that's been published. Um mm-hmm from any of those specimens so that's a great question but i'm not certain i see i see well just to you know back up a little bit and and talk about you know the national parks and national monuments for those that that don't know um, national monuments are designated by uh an act of the the executive branch the president can is authorized by the um antiquities act of 1906 to designate Um, areas that have cultural significance and uh, national parks are designated by an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I believe the first national monument was Devil's Tower in, um, in Wyoming. And and so like there's, you know, just, just a rich history of, of preserving, you know, these spaces for people and, and, finding seeing the significance of these findings um in dinosaur national monument i i see that there are also um uh, i'm i hope i don't mispronounce this but uh picto pictographs and petroglyphs yes we and have, these are we have both of them and and what are these for what is that for the people listening sure so and i'm not an archaeologist sure <laughs> I'll say that. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so 
there's one version of it is where there's been actual painting on the rock where they use a natural pigment to make paintings on the rock. Mm-hmm. And the other one is where they actually would take a, usually a stone tool and peck into the rock and, and leave a impression of, of something. Um, yeah. You know, they have lots and lots of really cool um, artwork and messages that they were putting out there. And so the park is very rich in its cultural history. Wow. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, I, when I was researching uh, Dinosaur National Monument, I see that there are, there's the uh, ability for people to walk a- around the park and, and be able to see fossils in the open, correct? Yes. And because the Morrison Formation is is just so plentiful, do you think, and, and there doesn't need to be any sort of, this is merely just an opinion, um, do, you, do you believe that ancient peoples would have come across fossils exposed in the Morrison Formation or specifically in the Dinosaur National Monument region? Oh, I'm sure they saw them, yes. Um, yeah. You know, and, and different tribes have different um, origin stories for fossils sometimes. Um mm-hmm. Different groups have different thought processes and, and thoughts on that. A neat thing that I, I found when working in southeastern Utah for the Bureau of Land Management, where I worked before mm-hmm. I worked for the um, National Park Service here at Dinosaur, is that a lot of our dinosaur track sites we would have would often be near rock art. And there are even mm-hmm. rock art sites that have tracks drawn in the rock art. and it, Of it's like theropods or of dinosaurs? Well, bird looking things yeah yeah it's hard to say for any certainty that that's what they were drawing but it's i'm sure that they probably were seeing these things so yeah it's wow. kind of cool that you see a lot of those things near each other um there are even um you know ancient structures where these people would live where they incorporated rocks that have tracks on them and stuff like that <laughs> so that's wow. pretty cool so i mean they were definitely yeah. seeing these things and recognizing them for being some sort of interesting impression and, and, um, you know, without speaking to them directly, it's hard to say what their thoughts on it were, but I'm sure that they probably thought them were just as neat as we do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow. How fascinating. I mean, I, that far, you know, that long ago and still being able to find them out there. I mean, I can only imagine where their imagination must've gone, Absolutely. you know, what, what is this thing? You know, there's a great book by, um, uh, author Adrian Mayer on Native Americans and and fossils. Oh, awesome! Yeah, definitely gonna have to check that out then. I, um, you know, when I was researching just the national monuments and national parks, you know, you you hear, you know, this came out because people were stealing and destroying um, Native American artifacts, and the Antiquities Act was meant to protect these, and it's it's just so it's great to see that that obviously that tradition is still going. Um, You had mentioned uh, the Bureau of land management and now you work for the, um, for the national park service, correct? Yes. So what, what, what are the differences between those two? They're, they're under, they're under the interior department, which, which, you know, uh, reports to the president is part of the executive branch, but can you tell us uh, what the differences are between these two agencies? Sure. Um, when I worked for the Bureau of Land Management, the Bureau of Land Management kind of has a multi-use mission. 
And so they manage the land for, for lots of different things, for people to graze cattle on or for people to be able to have recreational experiences on or for um, scientific research. There's all sorts of things that the BLM manages land for and, and they do a pretty great job of it. And mm-hmm. so when you're, my job with the BLM, I was a paleontologist in a field office position and worked for the, at the district level. So I worked in two different field offices. And if someone wanted to put in a new mountain bike trail, I might need to look at the geologic maps and say, oh, well, this mountain bike trail is super cool, but it's going to go through some areas that probably have fossils. So Mm. I would go out there ahead of time with the people who would be proposing the trail, or they would give us a map, and I would walk the area and make sure that we weren't going to be impacting any fossils. And usually our biologists would go with us and our archaeologists and and we would go out and survey, survey these areas to make sure that we wouldn't be harming any natural resources or cultural resources. And so that's one aspect of something I would do. I would work with mitigation paleontologists who may be out doing the same thing. Um, They may be, you know, they might be putting in a new road somewhere um, to to access. What is, what is mitigation paleontology? So mitigation paleontology is where they will hire paleontologists specifically to monitor a project that's taking place. And Mm -hmm. so the projects can be wide reaching. They can be a variety of things, but say that they're putting in a new access road to someone's, you know, to a new, you know, trailhead or something like that. Yeah. We might need mitigation paleontologists to be on site in order to make sure that when they're doing surface disturbing, so say they have a a backhoe out there or a grader, they may need to go out ahead of time and make sure that there aren't any fossils that will be disturbed. But the say it's the Morrison Formation where we have a lot of fossils that are found. Mm-hmm. We might need to have a paleontologist who knows what they're looking for, who can be out there every single day to keep an eye on the project and be able to tell the backhoe operator, hey, stop just a second. I think you may have found something and be able to jump in there immediately and look at it and be like, oh, no, that's just a cool rock. Or, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool dinosaur fossil. We need you to move around it. So they may like need to move ahead of the project a little bit and work hmm. on so that they can remove the fossil safely so that it won't be damaged. Is, um, I would imagine this happens a lot. I, I remember in, in San Diego, there were these um, mammoth, I think they were mammoth tusks that were discovered um, on the some some highway construction yeah. happening in San Diego. And I, I think there was some, there's still some, some debate about what those those fossils represent because they were broken in a way that some people suggest was made by humans. But these are, I, if the story, I, I think I got the story correct that the, that these bones were found at a time was a little bit earlier than would be, than what would have been expected for the kind of uh, damage that they found on the, on the tusk. Sure. Um, so there's all over the place. It depends on what unit you're digging in and, and, mm-hmm geologists and paleontologists will work together to look at those geologic units to be able to kind of say, oh, well, we found lots of whale fossils in this unit before. We found lots of plant fossils. Or you know what? This unit represents um, a time when we really don't find very many fossils, but we probably ought to check just to be sure. Mm -hmm. Or you can look at the map and say, oh, that's going to be an igneous rock. We're not terribly concerned about fossils being present there. So it's just you know, using your, your training and your background to be able to make those decisions 
And in the BLM, we had what we would call the potential fossil yield classification. And this was a tool that had been developed to help. It doesn't it doesn't tell you exactly where fossils will be found, but it mm-hmm. looks at geologic maps and it kind of gives you a way to have a ranking criteria to say, oh, it's more likely that you'll find fossils in this unit than you would in this unit. And it kind of helps land management agencies make these science-based decisions. Fascinating. And do these discoveries on a, on a construction site ever stop the work completely or is it just... Uh, you know, the the paleontologist is given space to operate while the rest of the project continues? Yeah, it depends on the project. Um, Things vary project by project. There was a um, pipeline up in Mm -hmm. Wyoming that they put in where they found a one of these long neck sauropod dinosaurs and they were able to the the people recognized what they were and they were able to route the, the people who were doing the digging around where the, the discovery had been made and they were able to continue on trenching with a paleontologist continuing to monitor mm. their work. But then another group of paleontologists were able to deal with this fossil that was found in the pipeline trench. And then they were able to safely remove it so that the pipeline trench could continue and they could um, go back and finish the work that needed to be done and the pipe could be laid safely. Right. Wow. So that happens. I mean, it's not every day, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what you want. You don't, you don't really want to find fossils sometimes because you don't want to, um, you know, you don't want the fossils to be damaged. And, but then again, sometimes that's the way things are found. Fossils have been found in roads where people had been driving for years and years and years. And the road wore down enough that, Oh, look, there's a fossil in the road. Um, Dinosaur tracks have been found by people thinking that the, the sandstone that they're driving on is just potholed. And then when people who know what they're looking for, get out and look, they're like, Oh, actually those are like sauropod tracks or something. Yeah. So, I mean, fossils can be found all over the place and, and sometimes inadvertently. And most of fossil discoveries are found by, you know, members of the general public who are out enjoying their public lands and uh, just out having fun and keeping their eyes out and, and notify scientists and, and, and people that work at museums or, at the BLM or at the park about something that they may have found. That's kind of cool. So we always encourage those people to reach out to us. Yeah. I mean, do you, I, I, I guess there's no right or wrong answer to this question, but you know, do you think, what do you, what do you think that there are greater, more impactful studies being made by trained paleontologists in the field or from just regular old Joe's finding fossils as they're walking around? Oh, I'd say it's definitely both. I mean, we have more paleontologists out actively doing research right now than we've ever Mm -hmm. had in the history of paleontology, which is really fabulous. A lot of the work that's being done is sometimes done in a museum setting. They may be looking at collections that had already been made. Um, They may be utilizing new technologies and new techniques to look at fossils that have been previously collected in order to gain new information from those. And then we have the paleontologists throughout the field doing traditional work. But a lot of times, you know, we may, we can't be everywhere. And so we rely on members of the general public, really interested people who love fossils and are super curious about them. Mm -hmm. Um, I've even had uh, ranchers who have found fossils who, you know, their cattle may have uncovered them inadvertently. (laughs) We've just, we love it when we hear from these people. And I think it kind of helps give them an, uh, an attachment to those too, because it's, it's that sense of discovery. It's so amazing. 
and right. it really hooks you. And so it's just really, um, I think, great to encourage the general public to help be our eyes and ears and keep an eye out for these things and do the right responsible thing of reporting things and, and knowing uh-huh. to enjoy them in place without picking them up. Because that's the thing I always like to remind people is when you find, say you find a really cool dinosaur fossil, like you find a big femur or you find a mammoth tusk and that's really mm. cool. You know, our, I think our just human instinct is to pick it up because right. it's <laughs> and you just want to like hold, look this at this thing. thing. Yeah. Um, but it's been in the rocker, um, it's been in the ground for so long that often when you try to remove it or even dig around it, if you, if you haven't had the experience of doing it correctly, mm. you might get overly excited and, and things break so easily. So we always encourage people to please just leave things in place and take pictures. If you have a GPS, get a GPS reading, or if you can yep. mark it on a map on your phone. And then that's the kind of data that paleontologists need in order to go out and relocate your find and be able to tell you what it is. And I know I personally, yeah. and a lot of other paleontologists I work with, we love going out in the field with people who actually made the discovery and help them find it again. And then even let them help you excavate it the right way. We had a, a wonderful yeah, yeah. lady named Paige that found a really cool um, apatosaurus femur in a river channel in here in Utah and she let the museum know and they, we got in touch with her and we went out and excavated it over mother's day two years ago with her. And it was just fabulous. It was, we had such a good time with her and I think it was such a a cool experience for her as well. So we love that kind of stuff. We really encourage them to reach out to us. I could only imagine the thrill of just finding something that, you know, or you're pretty sure no one else has seen, nothing else has seen this for tens of millions of years. It's super cool for a paleontologist. And I think it's got to be the same way for, for anybody who finds a fossil. Yeah. Well, this is this was a great segue to, to one of the main questions that I had to ask. What are the, the rules for uh, the average citizen when it comes to collecting prehistoric material on public lands? That's a great question. So when it comes to fossils um, on National Park Service land, so say you're visiting your your local national park or you're on vacation, Mm -hmm. if you find a fossil, even if it's of a seashell or a petrified log or or a bug, we ask Mm -hmm. that you leave those in place. Don't remove any of them. It's actually illegal to remove any fossil from National Park. Good to know. Good to know. So please don't pick any of those up, but definitely let somebody know about your discovery because we may not be aware of it. And some parks like Badlands National Park, they actually have a really cool program where they they want people to report things to them and they have forms that you'll fill out and then they'll take your picture and they have this awesome brag wall about all these people who've made all these really cool discoveries. I got to get on that wall. Uh So cool. They've got the most awesome prep lab, some of the best staff in the national park service. And they, they do a lot of really, really important good work and they, they love it when people find things and they have paleontologists that go out and find your fossil and document it. And even if it's one that somebody had found before, they'll still keep an eye on it to see if it's breaking down or weathering and yeah. if it's something that's really at risk, they probably go ahead and collect it so that it isn't going to just erode away. 
um, which I know it's sometimes something you hear like, oh, well, I found it, but you're not going to collect it. It's just going to erode away. Well, that's not the case, but mm-hmm. there's only so many paleontologists. We have to do things the right way and sure. the right time. And especially out west here, I mean, we can't dig year round. So we do the best we can with the time that we have. And then finding um, a researcher who may be really interested in that specific fossil in order to get it back to their museum so that it gets some some love and attention. Yeah. That's kind of segues into if you're collecting fossils, say, on Bureau of Land Management land. Mm -hmm. If you're out on BLM land, jeeping or hiking or whatever, and you find a dinosaur fossil or a mammoth fossil or, you know, any vertebrate animal. And that also mm-hmm. includes things like tracks or um, vertebrate trace fossils. So some people find what are called gastroliths, which are mm-hmm. um, polished stones that animals would ingest to help break down food in their stomach. And then they would pass out. Um, of their body. So gastroliths mm-hmm. or even coprolites, which is fossilized, um, you know, poop. poop. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are vertebrate trace fossils. So any vertebrate fossil, including vertebrate trace fossils, are illegal to collect on Bureau of Land Management land. So mm-hmm. we ask that people do not collect those. But if you can tell us where there are and let us know, that's super important. That said, if you wanted to collect plant fossils, or if you yep. wanted to collect some trilobites or some or invertebrates, invertebrate fossils, you can do that as long as you're using them for your personal use, mm-hmm. that you're not collecting them to sell. That's, that's a no-go. You can't sell them. But you can't collect them for your own hobby use, but they need to be common things, things that there's lots and lots and lots of. It's not something new and rare. Because even, say, if you're digging in the West Desert of Utah, where there are a lot of trilobites, those mm-hmm. are really cool. And so those are okay to collect, but you might also find an anomalocaris, one of these really kind of soft bodied mm. animals. And that might be really, really rare. So if you find something like that, we, we need that to be turned over to the museum or to, you know, the Bureau of Land Management to, to get to a museum so that those yeah. can be studied because they're just so really rare and really, really important. So rare invertebrates and plants aren't allowed to be collected, but common ones are. And I know sometimes it's hard to say, well, how am I supposed to know if it's common or rare? Yeah. And so you can reach out to museums and ask them that, for help identifying things. Or if it's something that nobody's ever seen before, it's probably rare. Um, yeah. So you And people it. should reach out to, I mean, this is a resource that's available for the public, Absolutely. you know? And so if, if anyone ends up finding something like that, um, you know, I, I would just echo what you're saying. It's definitely uh, notify a professional paleontologist or, or just the, the bureau in general. Um, yeah, to hear from people. I mean, I, I think sometimes there's that people are afraid to reach out to folks, but we're normal, real people too. And, and we love yeah. to hear about your discoveries. Even if it is something that we've seen before, we can still tell you that's a real cool Elbrathia trilobite. Awesome. Good yeah. job. Um, so you, you guys aren't going to, you know, use a, a raptor claw to scare a kid, right? When he makes fun of raptors <laughs> yeah. being six foot turkeys. That's you guys keep, don't do that. Yeah, I don't keep Utah raptor claws in my pocket. <laughs> I see. Probably probably for the best. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, they're a little on the fragile side. So sure. Uh, <laughs> even even cast replicas. I mean, if we know that we're gonna be interacting with the public, we may have some of that out so that we can show people what it looks like and let them hold a replica that won't break as easily. 
But for sure. the most part, we don't keep those in our pocket. <laughs> I see. Probably for the best. Yeah. And, and if you um, collect petrified wood too, again, that's oh. something you can't collect on park service land, but on BLM land, if you wanted to collect petrified wood, again, for your personal use, not for selling. Selling yeah. is a whole different thing. Yep. Um, you can collect 25 pounds a day or 250 pounds in a year. Um, and you need to be able to carry that out yourself. And it's not the kind of thing where you bring a backhoe in because you've got all five of your kids with you. So they're all going to carry yeah. out like a 25 pound chunk <sighs> with the backhoe. Yeah. So, you know, it needs to be something you're going to carry out for yourself and, and personally enjoy. And there's really, really great information on what you can and can't collect on the different websites for for the Bureau of Land Management. And definitely mm. check out the Forest Service too. Some people collect fossils on Forest Service land and they have oh. their own rules and regulations as well. So I encourage you to check out um, the different websites and those will kind of give you all the nitty gritty. I see, I see. You know, that when you study um, public policy and, and the policymaking process, you know, a lot of attention is paid to the politics of the of the situation at hand, the history of it, and you know, just different. You know, um, the authority that different agencies have and different institutions have. Um, but another area that that's you know highly studied in that field is how nonprofits and community based groups um, affect the policy making process. And I guess my you know last question would be how. What sort of effect do you think the public has uh, on the the policy side of protecting fossils, and what sort of role do you think the public can can play when it comes to preserving these for generations to come? Absolutely, we we love it when you all reach out to us. So if we have, especially say like a a fossil bill or something coming out, there's going to be a public comment period, and we want to hear from the mm. public. What do you think about this? Do you like this proposed rule? Do you not like it? What kind of suggestions would you like to see, you know, give us suggestions for things that you would like to see changed, mm -hmm. even if it's the way something might be phrased. This is, you know, the way these things develop and, and change over time. So, yeah, we definitely encourage the public to, to make those public comments. And those public comments really can um, change things. I mean, if a lot of people are noticing yeah. the same thing, it was like, oh, yeah, well, maybe we didn't phrase that the right way. Or that's a really good point. I didn't think about the way the public might interpret this one word or this one phrase or, Oh, the researchers mm. are really worked up over this, you know, definition or this, this proposed rule. So maybe we need to think about why are they worked up about it and how can we make it beneficial or do we need to keep it this way because, you know, something's been being abused over time or mistreated. So, yeah. So we definitely encourage the public to reach out during those public comment periods and and make suggestions reach out to the people you know who are working on policy we have paleontologists who work in washington who do yep. a really really fabulous job at what they do and are super conscientious and they're trying to do the best that they can and so yep. reach out to them with questions and and ask you know you know is this changing this way is this a thing is this law still accurate you know you can always reach out yeah. with your various questions as well Democracy is a verb. You should definitely, you have to engage in Absolutely. order to see change. Yeah, we want people to be engaged and involved. And that's how um, our science changes and grows over time. Everybody gets involved. It's wonderful. So it's always so awesome. reached out during those public comment periods. 
Of course, of course. Um, my last question, and I can't believe I haven't asked this. Uh, what, what's your favorite dinosaur? Oh, goodness. That's a hard one. Um, so <laughs> I'd say my favorite dinosaur is kind of a toss-up between Taurosaurus, um, which is something I worked on for my master's degree. So it's kind of near and dear uh -huh. to me. So I really yeah. love Taurosaurus. I got to work on Taurosaurus in Big Bend National Park, too. So that was pretty special. Taurosaurus is a bipedal, carnivorous, uh, <laughs> theropod dinosaur, yeah. right? Oh, no. Taurosaurus is an adorable, oh. wonderful, uh, what we call a ceratopsian dinosaur. He has... Oh, I messed uh, it up. He, he's kind of like <laughs> triceratops, but... I might have been thinking of... Is Torvosaurus? Torvosaurus, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. is, a, is a, a Jurassic theropod. But speaking of theropods, I guess the other, my other favorite dinosaur is one that I had the privilege of working on. Um, growing up in Arkansas, we didn't have a whole lot of dinosaurs. And so I got to work on the first dinosaur that was found in the state oh, yeah. and um, name it. And it's an ornithomimid dinosaur. Um, so oh, yes. Um, so it's Arkansas. So I see. Yeah. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Ornithomimosaur, uh, probably one of the most popular ones is Gallimimus, yes, exactly. uh, which is which is seen in in Jurassic Park towards the end of the scene or towards the end of the movie. Uh, Doctor Grant and the kids run from a herd of these things and yeah. hide behind a log and and see one getting get one getting yeah. eaten by the T Rex. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but th those are Ornithomimosaurs. They have long tails and arm, you know, big arms and. Um, and feathers and, and feathers and they're kind so of, cool. you know, kind of think like an ostrich or an emu with arms to give you a nice big bug and a very yep. long tail. Um, they probably, I think Gallimimus is ostrich mimic. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. Bird, bird mimic. Oh, bird mimic. I see. Yeah. So cool. Well, yeah, Rebecca, awesome dinosaurs. So, yep. Very fun. Great. Great. Um, thank you for being here today. I, this is just just such an incredible experience uh, from my end. So I really just appreciate your hospitality and your time. And um, maybe we'll cross paths after this. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much for reaching out and for including me today. Um, I would just say, you know, before before we go to those listening, check out uh, the National uh, National Park Service on social media and specifically Dinosaur National Monument to see the kind of interactive um you know, resources that they're providing to the public during, during this pandemic. And I just highly recommend that you guys check that out. And uh, will we be seeing you soon um, to give us two, two minute clips or yeah. live Q and A's anytime soon? Yeah, hopefully we'll be doing more of that here in the future. So definitely keep an eye out. And if you ever have any questions about any of the dinosaurs or fossils in the quarry, feel free to leave a comment there on social media and we'll get back to you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you for your time and have a have a great weekend. Thank you. I appreciate you as well. See ya.